I'm standing in the dining room of Derrynan House. It's the ancestral home of the liberator Daniel O'Connell and it's on the wild Iverra Peninsula in County Kerry. And the walls in this lovely room are hung with portraits of Daniel and of his family. But the one I'm interested in is this particular one, which is of a teenage girl. She is Daniel's eldest daughter, Ellen, and the portrait presents her as a well-read, educated girl. There are books behind her. There's a book of Thomas Moore's Irish Melodies, and in her hand, she's holding the sheet music of Moore's well-known song, The Harp That Wants Through Tara's Halls. And we know from various biographies that Ellen was well-educated. She spoke several languages, French in particular, and we also know that she was a poet who published a collection called Derry Nan in 1832 and other poems. And it was that particular snippet of information that caught the eye of the Waterville-based poet Paddy Bush. And as a result, he rediscovered a poet, a highly political poem, and a long-forgotten walk. And I'm now going to go out and meet up with Paddy and take that walk. Dost thou not love the mountain's breezy heights, the valley with its thousand sparkling rills, the echoing torrent and the cliff sublime? And dearer still to rove the lonely beach where billows burst in foam upon the rocks, to watch the seabird in its swirling flight and list the moaning music of the surge? Paddy, you're very good to be bringing me on this walk and I'm really looking forward to it. So we're standing here outside the house in Derry Nan Estate. We know Daniel loved it, but what did it mean to Ellen? I think it meant an awful lot to her. She refers in, in a poem to say that most of her childhood was spent in a dull, confining square, which presumably was Merrion Square, and contrasts it with the life of children who lived uh, among the mountains near the sea. It's, it's not clear how often she came here as a child because there was some alienation between her father and Hunting Cap, but certainly by the time she wrote the poem, it was deeply uh, entwined around her heart. And Hunting Cap, of course, was Morris O'Connell. Yes. Uh, Daniel's uncle from whom he inherited. Inherited, um, yeah. Derry Nan. And, I mean, even though she mightn't have been here until she was either in her late teens or early 20s, She'd probably have heard Daniel talking about it, wouldn't she? Yes, I mean, he was, as so many records show, obsessive about the place and said his character was formed by it. And, you know, I often imagine him going on and on and she rolling her teenage eyes, he's at it again, sort of thing. But, as I say, by the time she wrote Derry Nan in 1832, which she did when she was 27, she... Uh, was full of love for the place and a deep knowledge of the place. Well, let's step out then on Ellen's Walk. Where are we going to first? We're going to go, as the poem says, down the winding road to Sweet Achavor, down to the harbour. Or thence descending seek the winding road that to thy harbour leads Sweet Achavor where all our little fleet in safety ride in thy unruffled waters 
why beyond the rocks that at thine entrance lift their fronts, the sea in mountain billows rolls. Well, Paddy, it's a lovely morning and we're here in Derry Nan Harbour and uh, it's very quiet today. It's usually full of people with windsurfers and canoes and whatever, but, but not now. Ellen would have walked the path down here. Yes, she describes that in the poem. It would also have been very much part of the O'Connell economic activity. We call it Derrynan Harbour now usually, but it was known as Achavor Harbour and Abbey Island used to be known as Achavor Island and Achavor Abbey. It was part of their social milieu, but very much part of the economic milieu. This was where they traded or smuggled, whichever term you like to use. And what do you think this place meant to Daniel? You know, he said, I was born within the sound of the everlasting waves and mountains, waves, cliffs, the the things people come and tour around the Ring of Kerry to see were hugely important to O'Connell and obviously important to Ellen as well. Well, with the help or not of the smuggling business and the fact, of course, that the O'Connells were landlords, Daniel ended up as a respectable barrister in Merrion Square. His daughter married another respectable barrister and landowner, Christopher Fitzsimon. And recently I met a descendant of Christopher Fitzsimon. He is also Christopher Fitzsimon, would have been known as a former director, artistic director of the Abbey and also head of television drama and RTE. And he welcomed me to his home in Dunleary. Hi, Christopher. It's Olivia O'Leary. Come in. Hello, Olivia. Thank you so much for having us. Not at all. Come in. Christopher Fitzsimon, what was your relationship to Ellen O'Connell? Well, I knew precious little about her because I grew up mainly in my grandparents' house and my great-great-great-grandfather was Daniel O'Connell and the house was like a shrine. It was full of things like souvenirs of Catholic emancipation, photographs, early photographs and prints and um, I couldn't not have known about Daniel O'Connor. But I don't think I really knew anything about my great-great-grandmother, his daughter, Ellen. And did you know that she was a poet? There was a very nice dark green book with a wolfhound and, I think, a round tower on the front. Very sort of um, Iron Gobra type of decoration. And... That was her poems. But I don't know that as a child, up to university, I was aware that this person was writing poems that were actually published. So it was Daniel was the big figure rather than your great-great-grandmother who was, was Ellen, which I suppose is the way life was. Women don't get remembered. Women don't, and I think that that was part of her problem in life, that she was producing children, for example, 13 children. But she kind of wasn't noticed, I think. 
And I think the first I really became um, aware of her was when I was in college and there was a broadcast, probably by Austin Clarke in his poetry series, in which he said, these poems should not be disregarded. They may seem very old-fashioned, but they were of their time, and at their time they were most important in what they said. This was Ellen's collection, Derry Nan. Derry Nan and other poems collected by Ellen from various magazines in which she'd published them. And Austin Clark felt they were worth giving a whole radio program to. Um, that would have been in the 1950s. And then I thought, gosh, I must read these, and I did. Right, Paddy, where is the poem bringing us now? We're going to cross uh, a narrow tidal passage and over to uh, Abbey Island, or as it used to be known, Achamore Island. Across the sands where the receding tide has left free passage to the Abbey Isle, I shape my course and soon before me rise the old grey walls where once the hymn of praise rose to the living God. Now all is still, save the shrill whistle of the wild curlew, or the loud music of the winds and waves. I pass the arch, and in the grass-grown aisle pause o'er the marble that commemorates in plain but energetic phrase the worth, talents, and virtues of those long, long laid within the narrow house. Who's buried here in this tomb, Paddy? Um, O'Connell's grandmother is one of the more famous ones, uh, Mary Nigwev, or Mary O'Donoghue of the Glens. The inscription says she was of a proud and ancient family and a model for wives and mothers. Uh, also, Donald Moore O'Connell, her husband, grandfather of, of the Liberator, and Hunting Cap, uh, their son, Daniel's uncle from whom he inherited Derry Nan. And, of course, Daniel's own wife, Mary, is buried here as well. What about Eileen Dove, the woman who wrote Queen Arthur later, who, of course, was an O'Connell? Is she buried here? Uh, no. Um, nobody knows where she is buried. I think if she was given a, a normal family burial, it's probably with her husband in Arthur in Kilcray Abbey in Cork, but there, there's no inscription to say she was buried there, no record for it. She disappeared in later parts of her life from a historical record, if not from the literary record. Well, still, Maureen Gwiv, who would have been Daniel's grandmother, mm -hmm. uh, was very well known as part of the Irish tradition yes, of poetry. Yes, uh, a Gaelic poet, yeah. And I'm sure that Ellen would have been aware of that. I mean, do you think that would have meant something to her, would have given an extra resonance to this place? I, I do. I find it, in a way, surprising that it's not mentioned in her poem. I'm sure she would have been aware. She, she came from a very literary family. Uh, three of the O'Connell children uh, wrote poetry, published poetry, were published in the spirit of the nation, uh, so I'm quite sure she was aware of those literary 
resonances that are all around us here. Still, if you were to compare her poem, say, with Queen Artillera, the style is very different. She didn't take her style from those female ancestors, did she? No, I mean, she, she was an English speaker, raised in an English-speaking env- environment. Uh, Eileen Doves was, you know, a very Gaelic, Irish, and essentially an oral tradition. You know, its transmission was purely oral. Uh, Ellen's is a completely different world. Well, this cemetery, because this abbey is in the middle of a graveyard, is still used. I I gather that funerals still come across from the beach. Yeah, and occasionally the times of the funeral have to be adjusted to suit the tides. And you have to be conscious of the tides because... Sometimes, not every day, but sometimes the island gets cut off by yes. by the tide. Well, Paddy, there is another grave here that you're going to show me. Yes, the the grave of of Tomas Ruo Sullivan, who was in effect one of the last bardic poets who wrote praise poems for his chief. We'll head off and have a look at that then. So it's an interesting gravestone with a bit of Celtic intertwining up here and a picture of a liar, which I suppose is apt, seeing that he was, uh, he was a poet yes. and uh, a musician. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's a lovely tombstone. My, my daughter calls it Celtic Art Deco. <laughs> and now, what does it say here? Imasca Gaelta taga farshing Celine on Gahargasneem. Among his people of whom there are loads in the net from Carsevine to Sneem. And this is the, the, the line, Dirinan even Eirach, which means lovely, airy. Yeah, lovely, airy Dirinan. And Paddy, would you say he was the, the house bard of the O'Connells? Was there still such a thing? Well, that, that's the way he functioned and that's the way he lives on in folklore. I don't know much of a historical record there is of it. And Tomás Rua wrote at least five poems that are in effect praise poems for Daniel O'Connell. But there was another song that he wrote which is, is, is very famous, one called Auron Leor. Yeah, Auron Leor, where Tomás Rua laments the loss of his books that happened in a, a, a shipwreck just as the boat was leaving Derry Nan Harbour to bring his books to Port McGee, where he had taken up a job as a school teacher, and he laments all the books. And it was the rock just outside Derry Nan Harbour that brought that boat down. Yes, you can see it from the higher ground over there. Carig Eileeni Rahala is said to have been where the boat sank as it left the harbour. Go kwan velin she kasog mei Kai she golin even dajem Mara shulter fleet na farige Har solgen I bort megi the stadus shall fei huer min chen mahasam down ve shalon datar ha 
Okay, Paddy, we're heading across the island. Is it much further where we're going? No, the encouraging news is just over that hill. Yeah, ahead of us. Whether that's the accurate <laughs> news or not is a different question. Okay. Sure, we're lucky. It's a lovely, fine day. Beautiful day for this time of the year. Yeah. Scarif there I view, and Dinush, and the Green Lamb Isle, while on the dim horizon's furthest verge, the sister skellics lift their pinnacles. Nearer to home, the two-head isle appears, and the old woman's rock, and opposite the dursey stretch, while o'er the hills of wrath, a glimpse of Kenmare's estuary I gain. Well, Paddy, it was worth the hard slog up here, uh, even against the wind. So there's a great view. What are we seeing out there? Uh, I suppose the, the, what catches my eye down on the horizon to the south, uh, the bull rock, such in a, the bull, the cow and the calf, the islands, bull rock so important in Irish mythology and Ellen refers to those three islands in her poems as the Dursies because they're off Dursey Head. Nearer we're seeing Ilan da Chown, which she accurately translates as two-headed island. Uh, on the horizon to the west the Schelligs which she refers to again Scarif Island here. There's a, there's a whole panorama of islands uh, of peninsulas, we're looking at the, the Bearer Peninsula and Dursey Island, nearer to us, Lamb's Head, the Kenmare River, and then back towards the northwest, we're seeing Cownwicka or Hogs Head, which is the southern arm of Ballanskelligs Bay. So there's a whole panorama here, and the, her description of it in the poem is very, very accurate, as well as being evocative. Still, you do think of her in a long dress and God knows a crinoline or whatever, struggling her way up along here. She was some woman. She she was, and, and but there's no doubt she was here. Like it, the the whole uh, description of the place, it's dead accurate. You, you could use it as a a guidebook to get here. Well, it's a wonderful view. It was well worth the effort to get up here. We might get down out of this wind all the same. But come, no longer must I loiter here, or else the rising tide will shut me in a prisoner. This walk tells us so much about Ellen, about the sort of woman she was, 
about the sort of things that meant a great deal to her. But we learn a lot about her too from some of the family mementos and her great-great-grandson, Christopher Fitzsimon, has been showing me his. Christopher, among the mementos you have, you've actually got a letter that Ellen wrote at the ripe old age of 11, I think. Would you read a bit of it for us? We think she was 11. It's uh, dated Dublin, February 5, but of course there's no year given. And she writes to Daniel O'Connell, My dear father, Miss McCarthy says that we must write letters every Saturday, and this is on the subject of idleness. And I will tell you what I think of the effects of it. It makes little boys and girls unhappy. And then at the end of her letter, she says, I am not afraid of your being a severe critic because you are my father and therefore partial to me. I am your own idle Ellen. And she was very much, I think, a favourite daughter. She was definitely a favourite daughter, and I think in this there's a little twinkle in her eye, and she's thinking he's not going to be cross, no. and he's not really going to think that idleness is a terrible sin. So that's one of the mementos you have. But among your mementos, there's, there's something else that you have there. This is a broadsheet. It was published on the day that uh, Ellen was married to Christopher Fitzsimon and they had a splendid wedding apparently in Westland Row Church and this is what the broadsheet said. Hurrah, hurrah, Ireland forever. Great marriage in high life. The beautiful Miss O'Connell, yesterday at her father's house in Merrion Square by his grace, the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin. Christopher Fitzsimon of Glencullen House in the county of Dublin, Esquire. To the beautiful and accomplished Ellen, eldest daughter of the great and distinguished councillor O'Connell, Esquire. And she was 20 and her husband was 33 and he was already a very well-known barrister. And landowner and landowner in several counties. And I gather, it, I mean, it was a very good marriage and she was given a very generous dowry and that of Daniel's inheritance from his stingy old uncle hunting cap went into the £5,000 dowry that went with Ellen, which was a fortune in those days. It was really enormous, and uh, her husband must have been very satisfied, and his family must have been delighted, because they were always in debt for one reason or another. And among the mementos, her books and her husband's books? I think they were thrown in a shed at my family home in Glencollen, and my father rescued them, and he managed to save, I think it was around about 80, and brought them into the house and had them dried out and all that. And uh, when I was moving to a smaller house, I thought, these are of much greater interest to the general public than uh, to be in my parlour, so to speak. And so I decided to present them to Derry Nan, and there they are in a lovely uh, bookcase. And the breadth of their reading Ellen and Kit was quite extraordinary. 
She was she was quite well read, and I gather, I mean, quite well educated. She spoke, I think, Spanish, French, German, and Italian. Yes, they had relatives. The O'Connells had relatives in Italy, in two places in Italy, and also south of Paris. And she spent some of her childhood in Paris, and then later on, her husband died unexpectedly in um, Italy. And family tradition has it that she was absolutely devastated by this. I climbed the beach and quickly passing by the mansion house, that most irregular but picturesque and striking pile, I gained the antique garden, with its terraces and avenues of venerable trees. Thence wander forth into the meadow walk. So, Paddy, we've come up past the house, uh, in through the gardens, and we're at the beginning of what Ellen refers to as the meadow walk, it's a section of the walk. But now, this bit wasn't known about. We know about the earlier bit, Abbey Island and the beach, but this wasn't known about. The poem prompted you to look for this, didn't it? Yeah, um, I read Ellen's poem about the the meadow walk. I asked members of the O'Connell family and people who work here, has anybody ever heard of the meadow walk? Nobody knew about it, and... I was wondering, you know, was it a term just she used herself about a favourite walk? And then I came across O'Neill Daunt's description of going hunting with O'Connell, where he talks about going up towards Kumikishta by way of the meadow walk and describes it crossing and recrossing a stream exactly as uh, Ellen had. So I realised it was a real place with that name. And then I did what I should have done at the beginning. I went back to the original Ordnance Survey maps on their wonderful website of historic maps and found on that a pathway marked FP for footpath, which exactly matched Ellen and O'Neill Dawn's description. Uh, And that had to be the meadow walk then. So then it was a matter of going through overgrown places and seeing could we see traces of the walk to find it physically on the ground as well as on dotted lines in the map. Well, one of the people who helped you to uncover it was James O'Shea, who's in charge of all the grounds Mm -hmm. here. So let's go and have a chat with James. The Meadow Walk, thus surely much misnamed, for such a name, methinks, but ill accords with a rude path winding along the verge of a wild mountain torrent that at first flings itself across a pile of crags, wanders in many windings through the glen to lose itself forever in the sea. James, there are a few people who know these grounds as well as you do. How many years have you been in charge of the grounds here? Well, I came here from Killarney working in Amokras in 1978, so I've been here since then. It's a good long time. Yeah, over yeah. 40 years. Yeah. Well, when Paddy came and talked to you about a lost path, did you think he was hallucinating? Oh, not at all, no, because I know if, if Paddy talks about anything, he has a source, and sure enough, when he explained about the poem, it made sense. Yeah. And Ellen, having been part of the family, would have known about Ori 
actually use the, uh, that path. So, Was it a lot of work to bring it to light? Well, once Paddy had uh, found it and uh, traced it on a map, we found parts of it were uh, fairly obvious. So it wasn't that much except overgrown in parts, you know, with hazel and, and scrub, and that had to be cleared. And, and we had two men who were on a seasonal job, you know, who, who we were able to have at it all the time in the autumn. So they cleared the whole thing up to the top where it joins at the Kerry Way. So is it pretty well restored? Have you uncovered it pretty well already? It is, I think. There's not that much more to do besides a signage and it needs two foot bridges over the river. Yeah, which would be something to look forward to. I mean, people don't just come here for the house now, do they? Increasingly, they come for the grounds. For the grounds as well, yeah. People are aware more of the gardens as well. So it's it's a combination of attractions, you know. The, the, the dunes beat the Abbey Island house and gardens, and now this path. And, and the trees. Ellen mentions a venerable, rather an avenue of venerable trees. Which are close to... Uh, the start of, of the walk, which would be uh, the beech trees there. There's a, an avenue of them just uh, close by it. They're old trees now, but they'd have been, they could have been about 100 years old at the time. So they're probably there years. in her time? Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're the trees she meant. I'd imagine if she called it an avenue. She did. And it's close to the start of the meadow walk. So. Is there great excitement about the opening of this totally new, there at least is. totally new to you walk? Yes, there is great interest. In it. So it'll be a, a, a fine addition. So James, when would you hope to open this new path? Well, we would hope to have it open for uh, the summer this year because once uh, the bridges have been uh, completed, there's no other issues involved, uh, really. It's uh, fairly straightforward, besides adding in some uh, signage and arrows or, or whatever else has to be done. So we would hope this summer. So Paddy, on the meadow walk, when you were in the process of rediscovering it, of of finding it again, was it a matter, a lot of the time, of following the sound of the the stream? Yeah, well, later on you'd be able to see it, but just about where we're passing here now, I remember when I walked first looking for it with James, came to this point and you can hear it now in the distance the sound of the stream there and I said to him I think we must be on the right track. So uh, it's hearing the stream, it's tracing it on the map and it's then you see it and gradually you begin to see the physical path on the ground. So Paddy, we've followed the sound of the stream and we're now on its its edge here, on the edge of the stream. And what did you find here? Yeah, this is where we knew we were on the right path because as you can see on the far side of the stream there are stone foundations, fairly simple stone foundations and uncovered on this side of the stream a similar set of stone foundations. And they corresponded exactly on the map to a term called a footstick, which is an old term uh, used in ordnance survey maps for a simple footbridge, probably a single plank or two plank bridge. 
So the fact that we found the foundation, stone foundations corresponding to this on the map meant we had found the meadowwork. So all the time underneath the ferns and the bracken and whatever, the walk was here? The walk was here, yeah. And, it, you know, it's, I personally take huge satisfaction that was a poem that led to the physical discovery of the physical walk. Who oped this little Eden in the wild? Who gave to scenes by nature sternly grand the grace and comfort now so striking here? Why, one who, fame declares aloud, has wrought more wondrous changes in the moral world. The scourge of sycophants, the tyrant's dread, the pride and glory of his native land. So, Paddy, this poem, Derry Nan, in 1832, written by Ellen O'Connell Fitzsimon, is more than a pretty poem about her father's home place. Is, I mean, is even the date and the title significant? Yes, the poem was published at the height of the 1832 election and elections and voting went on over a period of months at that time. So it was published in a political magazine at the height of an election campaign which was crucial towards establishing O'Connell for the next 10 years as holding the balance of power in Westminster. Uh, not only... Daniel O'Connell was standing, but five others of his family circle between sons and sons-in-law, including Ellen's husband, were elected in that year. And it was published in, what we might say, the white heat of that election. So its date of writing, its place of publication and its subject matter were an intensely political as well as a literary act. Who that has seen him in his mountain home, surrounded by a merry dark-eyed train of laughing elves that wind him as they please, who to their grandsire run in every strait, secure for wildest mischief to obtain complete impunity, if not applause? Or who that saw him with a glistening eye, watching the sleep of cherub infancy? had in that fond and tender parent traced the conqueror of Wellington, the man who first this glorious lesson taught the world, that what a nation steadily pursues, unstained with blood, unsullied by a crime, however delayed, must still be hers at last. Daniel O'Connell comes very well out of this poem. It's what many people might regard as a soft focus piece in a Sunday magazine type way. Mm -hmm. um, he's shown as humane, as loving. Um, and when she was presenting him in that way, what was she trying to counter? Uh, well, O'Connell was a huge hate figure for a lot of what today we call the right-wing Tory press you know, the, the London Times, Punch magazine, that sort of stuff. Um, and he was seen as a brutal, brutish, primitive leader of a primitive people. I think she was showing him as a civilised, urbane, well-rounded, cultured, talented man at home who doted on his grandchildren 
but at the same time, as she said, was the conqueror of Wellington. And she's referring back to the 1828 election, when, as a result of which, Wellington had to advise the king to uh, grant Catholic emancipation. So, as a piece of PR, as we would see it these days, soft focus PR, does it work? It was brilliant. Or who, that heard him at the social board, returned aweary from the chase at eve, talk o'er the varied fortunes of the day, with boyish eagerness describe the spot where first the hare was started and repeat her every winding till the close of all, had recognised the far-famed voice of one practised with eloquent appeal to touch the minds of men, one to whose mighty powers an alien senate bore unwilling witness. But Paddy, does the political message in the poem hamper it as a piece of poetry? Not, not at all, because the poem is Ellen's experience of Derry Nan in 1832. She is described, as we've seen, the, the landscape and places and her walks in the place. And part of her experience was the joy of seeing her father with her family. And she reminds herself, as she watches her father babysitting, putting her kids to bed, she sees him there. She has to remind herself that this is the conqueror of Wellington. Everything is intensely real in it. The political message is part of the fabric of the poem just as much as the landscape of Derry Nan is part of the fabric. And they're all interwoven into what to me is a, is a very fine, seamless tapestry of Derry Nan in 1832. Well, now... Let's hear what Ellen's great-great-grandson, Christopher Fitzsimon, thinks about the poem. Well, first of all, um, the language in which it's expressed is dated even for that time. She uses archaisms such as methinks, things like that, and it's old-fashioned. And I get the impression that she might have been reading early Wordsworth, um, probably she read um, Wordsworth's poem, uh, The River Dudden, uh, which is a river in Cumberland that he went back to in later life, that he rem remembered as a child. And this may have been the model for this poem, going back and um, contemplating the landscape as it was remembered, and what it's like now, and what the world is like now. And I think that's what she was doing. And I think the, the language, the rhetoric, doesn't quite live up to the idea. But as a vehicle to uh, help her father politically, to present him as, as a genial host, as a happy family man at home in his environment, does it work from that point of view? I think it works from that point of view. I think that comes across extremely well. I'm just sorry about some of the te technicalities of the poem, which I don't think quite make it. Right, but as a piece of public relations... First class. Enough. Perhaps too much on such a theme. Yet how could I refrain from pouring forth the fullness of my heart in fervour and praise of one so loved, so honoured, one so well deserving love and honour. 
I inherited the enormous uh, portrait of Ellen that was done in later life when she was in Paris. Tell us about that portrait. It is about uh, eight feet by six feet. It looks like a public work of art. It isn't something you could hang in your house because it would dominate the whole thing. But it dominated my grandfather's study in his very modern house in Sandyford. Um, when I inherited it, I thought it has to be cleaned, the frame has to be attended to, and we discovered that there was no... A painter's signature, which was disappointing, but it was definitely done in, in Paris because we could discover that from the frame. And it would have been shown in Paris in the Academy about the time that um, Monet and Renoir and people like that were showing in the Salon des Refusés. And this would have been an old-fashioned portrait. But it looks very good on the stairs at Derry Nan. It's just right. It's a piece of public art. Well, Paddy, we've walked the walk, the rediscovered walk, and we're now back in Derry Nan House in front of another portrait of the woman who has helped us to discover the walk. And it's Ellen, uh, Ellen in her old age. What is this portrait telling you about Ellen? I think it's the most interesting of the portraits. Uh, the background is very dark. Ellen is, you know, a careworn woman, perhaps. Uh, but I think what's interesting about it is how, you know, the hands are inverted, holding a bracelet, a locket of her father. She's looking out at the viewer. Uh, and it's almost as if she is saying, the meaning of my life has been keeping the memory of my father alive. Yeah, and of course she's, she's an old lady there and she's been a widow for quite a long time. Yes, yes, and, and that sadness is in it. The, the, the portrait reminds me of Edouard Manet's portrait of his mother, the same sort of effect, looking out of a darkness, but almost as if there were a spotlight on the rather worn face, but in this case particularly on the hands holding what is in effect a shrine to her father. And of course, in a way, almost everything she did was about the preservation of her father's uh, career and, and the memory of him. Her father's legacy, I think, was very important to her. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're in all her work, there's, there's a, a natural affection for Derry Nan and her father, but at the same time, there is a, a recognition of his public legacy as well as his familial legacy to her, and I think this portrait embodies that. Well, she has referred to her own poem modestly as trifles and feeble. Um, is there anything, do you think, that shows regret on that face, that she did not achieve more as a poet? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, she has said that in, in, in her own poetry and maybe that affects the way you look at it. But certainly I see a sadness in it uh, and you could certainly tie it in with that feeling that she had sacrificed her own personal talent, not just to the memory of her father, but as she says in one poem, you know, being wife and mother. And she had 13 children. Yeah. 
Still Noel Paddy, Ellen O'Connell Fitzsimon, does she deserve to be remembered and does her poem Derry Nan in 1832 deserve to be remembered? Absolutely. Uh, I think Derry Nan in 1832 particularly is an extraordinarily vivid uh, picture of the Derry Nan she loved, written in a very contemporary setting, you know, playing with her children, wandering the places we have seen in our walks early, and it is one of the most vivid portraits of Derry Nan that I know of. Soon, too soon, I must away, for duty calls me back to scenes not less beloved, though less sublime. Yet wheresoe'er I wander, ne'er shall I forget thy wild enchantments, Derry Nan. The murmur of thy mountain stream shall still be with me in my dreams, and bring me back in blessed illusion to that happy spot. And when I wake, although a sigh may steal from my full heart to find it but a dream, a prayer shall rise to heaven for those beloved whose presence sheds upon thy glens remote a glory and a gladness all their own. <laughs> 